Hello, welcome to another Science Shambles podcast. Make sure you subscribe uh, on iTunes or Spotify or RSS or SoundCloud or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And give us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts as well, if you can. That really helps us out. Now, we normally record for about half an hour for the Science Shambles podcast, but with this uh, quantum physics episode, we ended up recording for about 50 minutes. So we thought we'd put that whole conversation out as a bonus uh, for Patreon supporters. So if you would like to hear the full unedited version of this episode, you can become a Patreon supporter over at patreon.com slash bookshambles and all of the pledges that we get on there, you can pledge as little as a dollar a month, goes towards helping everything we do at Cosmic Shambles Network, our live events and book shambles and science shambles and our blog network and everything else. So if you enjoy this and you enjoy what we do, uh, go over there and uh, consider throwing us a quid if you can. Or a dollar, rather, because it's in uh, US currency, because that's the way Patreon works. So here is our quantum physics special of Science Shambles with Robin chatting to Jim Baggett and Philip Ball. Yeah, there's there's books to be written, and some of them have been. Yeah, you got a Nobel Prize. No, I always like the fact. Yeah, Jocelyn Bell Bunnell has, uh, you know, always says that uh, she's glad in the end she didn't get it because she gets gets to win all these other prizes instead. Whereas if you get the Nobel Prize, you don't get any other prizes. They go, you've had that now. Um, You've had your share. Welcome to uh, Science Shambles. Uh, slight change uh, because the day that we're recording this, the uh, rail infrastructure of uh, the southeast has uh, collapsed, and uh, so we haven't got Dr. Linda Cremonisi on today, but she will hopefully be on uh, a Science Shambles very soon. We will have Philip Ball with us in uh, a moment. That's nothing to do with rail infrastructure. That's due to me sending the incorrect email. Uh, but we are joined by at least one of our guests, who is Jim. Baggett, who has uh, the first book of yours I read, I think was the one about reality that yes. kind of was was uh, given that cover, the very matrixy kind of cover yeah, yeah. with with with, with, the the, with the rabbit on it as well. Yep. So was that partly with the rabbit on it? Was was that also an answer back to uh, through the rabbit hole? That um, yeah, was it called through the rabbit hole? That thing through the well. In fact, if you remember the Matrix, the script actually had uh, Neo uh, talking about follow the white rabbit, uh, and there was a white rabbit tattoo on some woman's shoulder. That's within, right. When they were in the in the uh, in the dive, uh, doing all of the gyrating uh, to heavy uh, metal music uh, later on in the film. But yes, so the the idea of that book, I mean, it's an obsession of mine. I guess um, I. I I've been fascinated by the nature of reality ever since I started to get my head around some of the mad things that quantum mechanics was saying about it and thinking, okay, well, if quantum mechanics is telling us this, then um, let's just make sure we're talking about the same thing. Let's just understand reality the way maybe philosophers understand reality. Um, I discovered uh, in my journey uh, through the subject that um, there's some wonderful books by the American philosopher John Searle um, uh, about the nature of social reality. The reality That's of, weird. I was reading the reality again, of money, social construction of reality, which That's which your, your your first yeah. chapter in that book yeah. is is yeah. And and it, you, you, the minute you start to ponder, like with most philosophical subjects, the minute you start to ponder, the deeper and deeper you get drawn into what seems to be a perfectly mundane and ordinary feature of of our daily lives. 
But, you know, the significance of a wedding ring, uh, the reality or otherwise of, of money, why the hell do we believe it has the value that it does? Because it's a social value and it's a social standard that we, we learn um, at a very early age to come to accept. Well, this is it, because at the moment we're going through what appears to be a slightly bizarre period in terms of what is believed and what isn't believed. Though I've talked to talked to Martin uh, Ralston the other day, the, the cartoon, he said the, the, these manipulations of, of, of reality by those who have the largest amount of money and wish to gain the most power have always existed. It's just yes. that we're currently very... Uh, so connected to it that yes. we can't help but believe it's got worse. Whether yes. it, I don't know how you. But this this notion of what is real, you know, we hear the terms obviously fake news a lot of yeah. the time. Uh, we've seen the elevation of of crackpot theories, which we would have surely ten years ago thought were were long gone. Flat Earth being being the most obvious example. I I don't know that they've ever really gone away. I think I think what you what you see is that as a result of some things that have happened in on the political stage, uh, that the people that uh, want to wed themselves to these crazy ideas and to, uh, again, social media is a big enabler here, want to spout their ideas, um, I feel it felt emboldened to do so. I mean, when you've got a mad person as president of the United States of America, what's to stop you uh, believing that the secret of managing all forest fires is to make sure you rake regularly? I mean, you know, absolutely ludicrous, but nevertheless, um, he's president of the US and uh, at the moment we have some loonies in charge of parts of the Conservative Party pushing us possibly towards a hard Brexit next March. And you have to say, well, you know, when you've got madness like this, who's going to really take any more notice of another bit of madness creeping through on Twitter or on Facebook um, in, in relation to the flat earth or the unreality of money or the existence of the multiverse. Well, you're, because your new book, Quantum Space, uh, it, well, it's, a, it's a book looking at, uh, at the, the journey towards ideas of quantum gravity. But, but yeah. before we go, in some ways, uh, I, I'm always intrigued as to whether some scientific ideas uh, should not be popularised because once they actually get out there, then people will just... Like, you know, with uncertainty theory, for instance, yeah. I've read introductions to books which have said, well, of course, as physics has shown, everything's very uncertain. Yeah. And you think, well, hang on a minute, you've taken something which is very specific in terms of what yeah. it's saying uh, a, a, about part of our understanding of the universe and now turned it into... So do you sometimes feel... Or, or again, thinking of, uh, of some of the kind of New Age things, you yeah. know, the, the, the Deepak Chopra yeah. uh, way that... Sometimes he seems to talk in a, a way that would appear to be concrete about ideas uh, within quantum theory. But then when he's questioned about that, he'll say, oh, no, I just kind of I, I, I mean that just as a kind of a story version. Yeah. So we, is, is there a danger that ideas which are so counterinstinctual, such as those ideas of quantum mechanics, uh, that if, if when they're thrown out there, people will just pick the thing which allows them to go, well... The universe is to a certain, too strange. To a certain extent, that's, that's always been the case. I mean, uh, yeah, I can point to any one of a number of popular movies that seem to have nothing whatsoever to do with physics, and yet, uh, you know, occasionally we'll get Heisenberg's uncertainty principle thrown in there as a parable for some aspect of, of our you know, modern way of life. Um, and I think it's to a certain extent inevitable because um, quantum mechanics did and still does have that kind of new age mysticism about it. It's a bit of an ooh-ah kind of a oh, wow moment where you think, well, again, you know, what we 
seem to want passionately to believe as human beings is that we don't have answers for everything. There is still mystery. And as a consequence, quantum mechanics lends itself to that kind of vibe uh, very well. Okay, so we can never know everything because there's innate uncertainty in physics. But of course, it's only really relevant when you get to the level of an electron. Uh, <laughs> and it really doesn't determine whether Gwyneth Paltrow will live one kind of life if she makes it onto the tube versus another kind of life if she doesn't. But the simple truth is that, that yeah, we, we, we tend to want mystery. We tend to want, and, and that's why when, when I was, you know, at university, uh, bookstores were filled with books on Eastern mysticism, mm. on Buddhism, Taoism, um, all of these different flavors, different ways of looking at the world and trying to make sense of the world and trying to acquire a set of moral values uh, within the world. We're all inspired by you know, a sense in which this isn't working for me. Christianity, Judaism, um, you know, um, Islam, this isn't working for me. There must be some other way of understanding the world that, that is better. And there's always been that uh, characteristic, I think. It's human nature always to look for something that's a bit more mysterious so we can wrap uh, thoughts around it, twist ourselves, twist our minds, come to believe some of it, maybe not believe all of it. But generally speaking, we take from it whatever we want that helps to reinforce some prejudices, some set of prejudices we might have. Is that there's a book that I've still not got around to reading, and it's the one that's always close to my bed but never quite open, which is called uh, the uh, I think it's the uh, How the Hippies Saved Physics, yeah. And that's looking at that kind of dancing of the Wooly Masters, that's right. Uh, and some of the stuff that uh, I know that, that Ken Wilbur would uh, put together books where he did actually, as far as I, I hope I'm right saying this, where he, he said it is important to know that these are separate issues, mysticism and 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 physics, yeah. But nevertheless, there was a point with some of the the, the leading minds yeah. that when confronted by this there was I'm, I'm trying to remember which one of the great um, physicists actually put the yin yang, yang sam, uh, symbol on his uh, coat of arms there was um, uh, um, um, I, I would probably struggle to remember but I, Phil Ball might know so when yeah, he's yeah, here yeah, we'll, we'll yeah. ask yeah. that but, but that so, so that I suppose yes trying to find meaning when then when you get down and I know this is probably an inaccurate thing to say but when you get uh, down to this form of measurement the Tower of Physics, it was called, and it's still, I think, a, a bit of a, a best. Sorry, I, I'm at that age now. I'm over sixty now. Uh, you you think a little bit more slowly, and sometimes you have the name or the book or whatever it is that you're reaching for right in your grasp, but somehow it eludes you. And you turn on, you turn away, and you think about something else, and then it pops straight in. It's Niels Bohr. There we go. We just had uh, our, our screen of knowledge, which is Niels Bohr had the yin-yang okay. crest uh, okay. uh, uh, placed on, on his crest. Sorry, but going back, yes, yeah, but, to that. But Fritjof Capra de definitely uh, drew analogies. Uh, and he, he, I mean, that was a best-selling book. The Tower of Physics was a best-selling book for, for years. The funny thing was that it was, it was talking about um, um, something called a bootstrap model. This was the days before quarks were, were, were really there was sufficient evidence to believe in their existence and the bootstrap model was effectively a, a way of trying to create elementary particles out of all of the other elementary particles in other words there was nothing really elementary about them they were all parts of each other uh, which of course faded I mean it was just dropped as soon as evidence uh, appeared in the late 60s uh, that quarks were real um, uh, but that didn't stop the book from being a bestseller. Mm. Still, there's a chance you'll even find it on bookshelves today because, again, it, it, it appeals to that sense that we're looking in modern physics for, for some aspects of what the Americans call woo, uh, which will help to reinforce some prejudices we might have about there needs to be mystery in the world or, or that it is, in a sense, mysterious. And even Nobel Prize-winning physicists struggle with the mystery. Um, 
and uh, quantum mechanics is a fertile fertile ground for for this kind of uh, this kind of babbling is that where you're making the mistake with your books because this means that they've lost their longevity because eric von daniken all of his books about alien visitations <laughs> and the building of various I, structures they are still on sale because love, they're as wrong today as they've always been I love whereas those yours books. I love quantum those space this, that's, who that's, knows what's going to happen that's my that's my that's my um, yeah that, I, I i went to to a skeptics conference in uh, las vegas i think in uh, 2014 or 2015 i can't remember which now and um, and and the, the whole idea was you're there you're there the arch skeptic you know trying to you know diss some aspect in my case it was to diss some aspects of modern theoretical physics, just to sort of say you know well you know theoretical physicists are not beyond this kind of woo in themselves. Um, and um, I, I was asked, you know, you, 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 the, the rule was you had to reveal um, some aspect of nonsense that you'd embraced as a kid. Uh, as evidence that you'd you know kind of grown, and Eric von Daniken's books uh, were, were well, I found them fascinating, uh, absolutely uh, typical though of a way of almost of constructing a conspiracy theory out of just basic observations. We've got these perfectly spherical rocks in some part of Egypt, maybe oh, that's evidence for alien, <laughs> you know. It, Perfectly satisfactory explanations for all of these things existed, uh, but uh, put them all together, and yeah, okay, it's starting to look like uh, some kind of alien conspiracy. It was interesting. I, I, I love yeah. them. I, I really did. I, I mean, I think they were a gateway. They could go either way because, uh, you know, the, the, the things that we had, the Unexplained magazine and Arthur C. Clarke's Mysterious World, which yeah. is actually a very sceptical show, which is you, you didn't remember as a child. Yeah. And I went back to them recently, and, and at the end of it, each one, Arthur C. Clarke, I don't really think there's very much evidence to say that this is true, you know. Um, but it's... Uh, Interesting. someone, I was doing an event in Toronto and, and one of the guests was someone from SETI and she was saying, you know, yeah. still the Eric Von Daniken thing, the thing that is uh, most toxic about that is the element of racism within yeah. it, which is to say, how could these simple people from this simple part of the world built these clever things? Yeah. Surely only a, and that's an incredible, yeah. Yeah. that was the bit that we didn't notice as kids, did yeah. we? We hadn't put we, that we, bit we, together. We hadn't got that little bit of our world understanding in place yet. Yeah. This is, we'll, we'll, we'll move on to Quantum Space, which is your, your book, which is, is just out. And uh, this is looking at, uh, at quantum gravity. Yeah. So uh, quantum gravity, is this where we get the meeting between uh, basically what we see in terms of quantum understanding of the early 20th century and in terms of the Einsteinian view of the, the universe? Yeah, this is this is one way of maybe thinking about this is is this is sort of Einstein's unfinished business. Uh, he spent the latter part of his scientific career um niggling away at a, effectively a kind of unified field theory that would bring electromagnetism together with with gravity. Um, he seemed a little bit oblivious to the fact that we'd actually moved on in that time in the 40s and early 50s. Uh, he died in 1955 um, in understanding that there were other forces at play. There was a strong nuclear force holding particles together inside an atomic nucleus. There was a weak force responsible for some aspects of radioactivity like uh, beta decay. Um, and nevertheless, Einstein's mission still remains the mission today. You've got this structure which was created in the 1920s um, called quantum mechanics, which explains and is very, very powerful uh, explanation of things going on on very small scales like inside an atom or 
you know, the structure of molecules. Um, Jim Al-Khalili will talk to you about quantum mechanics and how that might be important in biological systems. So it's, it's, it's a scale, but it's a scale down at the level of molecules and atoms and, and, and inside the nucleus, subatomic particles. Um, and you've got this other structure that Einstein had a hand in called general relativity. Now, general relativity um, is, is, in effect, uh, a way of explaining how gravity works. Um, uh, one of the problems with Newton's inverse square law of gravity is that there's no explanation for it. Uh, you've got the moon is being attracted to the Earth, uh, uh, but, but by seeming magical force that holds the two in an embrace. Um, in fact, at the time of uh, Newton's publication of his famous um, uh, Principia Mathematica, um, his arch-rival Leibniz accused him of introducing occult forces into his description of, uh, of gravity. And he then famously, in a later version of that book, uh, said he, he framed no hypotheses as to how it worked. Einstein's general relativity explains how it works. Um, uh, a big mass like the Earth curves space-time around it. Now, that's, that's a really difficult thing to get to come to terms with. Uh, I was actually at a, at a, um, uh, a, 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 a talk I gave uh, a few Wednesdays ago uh, where I'd, I'd introduced this. I said, you know, well, of course, space-time curves. And, and the guy at the other end of the dining table where I was giving this talk said, How? <laughs> <laughs> this is the first time he'd heard of this notion. Um, I therefore thought, you know, it was reasonably common knowledge. But, you know, how? It's a very, very difficult thing to get hold of. And you can draw pictures that you put in books that show the Earth sort of sitting like on a trampoline. And, and as it depresses the trampoline, it creates a curvature, which the moon then follows as it goes around, uh, as it goes, you know, as it as it gets caught in Earth's gravitational embrace. Now, General relativity is used to explain big things. Uh, it can explain, um, you know, uh, Einstein famously used it to explain the um, precession of the perihelion of Mercury. Now, the perihelion is just the point of closest approach in an elliptical orbit. There's a perihelion and there's an aphelion. Uh, but um, if there was nothing to perturb the orbit of Mercury, uh, you'd expect to find Mercury in the same place, in the same perihelion, each with each passing year but because of the existence of all the other planets in the solar system and and, and uh, some effects uh, of the sun the, the perihelion moves such that you kind of get an extra orbit for mercury i think every every 300 years or so i can't remember now the exact details um and um you can explain this partly with newton's inverse square law of gravitation um because the other planets in the solar system are pulling on Mercury as it orbits the sun. Uh, but Einstein famously discovered that it doesn't quite give the exact number, the precession, uh, but his general theory of relativity does. It's an extra 43 arc seconds per century of precession that is explained by general relativity but not by Newton's uh, gravity. And as a consequence of that and a whole bunch of other observations, not least uh, the discovery of gravitational waves by LIGO in 2016, we've got this firm belief that general relativity is a, a good and adequate description. So we use it for big things. We use it for the universe. We use it for planetary systems. We use it for stars, galaxies. Um, the problem is that um, at some stage... Given that we believe that the universe kind of began, in inverted commas, 13.8 um, billion years ago, um, 
there must have been a, a period when the universe was as big as a quantum object. Uh, so at some stage in the history, in the evolution of the universe, uh, quantum mechanics and general relativity would have come together. Uh, there would have been one description. Um, and the trouble is that ever since the notion, uh, in fact, even introduced by Einstein himself in uh, as long ago as 1917, uh, I think, uh, uh, as soon as you start to look at how you might put these two grand structures together, quantum mechanics and general relativity, you run into all sorts of difficulties. But within the last, I'd say, 30, maybe 40 years, there's been some progress. Um, a lot of people will have read about progress with string theory. I happen to be not a fan of string theory for all sorts of different reasons. I don't generally like to have to believe six impossible things before breakfast. Um, and I just wanted to give a little bit of a profile to another way of getting at a quantum theory of gravity, which is to start with general relativity and find a way to kind of quantize it, add a quantum flavor to it. And that leads you to a structure called loop quantum gravity. Um, and two, uh, amongst many, uh, architects of loop quantum gravity, uh, guys, uh, Lee Smolin, who uh, works out at the Perimeter Institute in, Tor in Toronto in Canada, and Carlo Rivelli, who has attracted some fame and no doubt some fortune with his best-selling um, Six Brief Lessons in Physics, uh, which was published a couple of years ago. Well, this is what we're joined by Philip Hall <coughs> as well, who's uh, author of many books. The uh, uh, Critical Mass, I think, was the first one that I, I read of yours. But now Beyond Weird is looking at, I suppose, something we've, we've only touched on a little bit in this conversation, which is... Um, Commonly held myths or misunderstandings uh, within sometimes the popularization of ideas of quantum mechanics. I mean, within, within the first chapter, within the introduction, you talk about a lot of things which someone like me, who's not a scientist, kind of goes, oh, that's that's how it works in quantum mechanics. Go, no, the, these are, uh, much of it is myths and, and, and stories and presumptions and conjecture, which are fabulous myths and intriguing conjecture, but actually isn't really what quantum mechanics is about. Is that a fair summary of, of where you see your starting point? Yeah, I guess what I'm really trying to do is to bring the story up to date because over the past decade or two or three, we've made huge leaps in our understanding of what quantum mechanics does and doesn't say about the nature of the universe. Things that were just thought experiments for people like Bohr and Einstein have become real experiments. We can actually do them now with the technologies that we have. And so we can be much more specific about what quantum mechanics really seems to consist of. And yet, when we talk about it, not just journalistically, but sometimes, you know, in, 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 in popular books, but also in sometimes in research papers, we still fall back on this same sort of collection of quantum cliches, it seems to me. And there are things like the idea that an object, a quantum object, can be in two places at once, and this is called a quantum superposition. Um, and, and, and there are th things like uh, the idea that a quantum object can be both wave and particle somehow at the same time, or maybe at different times, or sometimes it's a wave and sometimes it's a particle. All of these stories, they're not exactly wrong, but they, we can do better is really what I want to say. And I really want to uh, try to delve in this book into what we can say 
now about what quantum mechanics seems to be telling us about what the universe actually is like, what this stuff uh, actually is like. And it seems to me that very often these cliches come about, when you look at them, they're actually kind of classical stories about what quantum is doing. Um, so, you know, we, we come back to using classical physics because that's the physics we're familiar with, with actual objects that are in actual places that we can see and touch um, or, you know, waves on the sea or something. And so we come back to these uh, these classical stories. And if you do that, you risk really missing the point about quantum mechanics, which is that you simply cannot have a classical picture. Now, you know, I, I kind of think to some extent we, we, we may need stories like this because it's very, very hard. And this is um, what Niels Bohr himself said about quantum mechanics. It's very hard to find language that we can use to talk about what's going on because our language is geared to a classical universe because that's what we experience. So it is challenging, but I think we can do it. And I think we can do it sometimes not by, I, I guess what I end up with um, at the end of the book is by saying that what we, the language we need to use to understand quantum mechanics is not an is language, but an if language. And what I mean by that is that we should stop trying to say, at the moment at least, trying to say the world at the quantum level is like this. This thing is either a wave or a particle. Um, we have to use an ifness. So we have to say, if we do this, if we ask these questions, if we look at this, um, th this system in this way, then we will see this. Um, but uh, we, we can't boil that down to, at the moment, to any real description of what is actually there. Because it seems to me that quantum mechanics isn't really a theory about that. It's not a theory that's trying to tell us that. It's a theory that we need, as humans, on the human scale, to try to make sense of what goes on at the quantum scale, um, which, you know, in many ways defies our intuition and certainly defies our experience. Well, this is right. I've got a couple of, of my stupid questions, which is one, you know, sometimes I, I am told or I, I think, yeah, it's a probabilistic universe. But is it not that is it that the universe isn't probabilistic? It's just that what the way we're measuring it makes us put together. If you see what I said, so it, it is about the, the viewer. It is about the observer. So when you're writing about wave particle duality, uh, it's not that now it's a wave and now it's a particle. It's actually that in my perception of it, is that correct or is that that wrong? So it's a lot of it is about the perceiving of the object for a human rather than the object itself. I think that's what that's essentially what quantum mechanics is telling us. It's telling us what <laughs> what we will see in a particular experiment. Um, if we do that experiment, if we observe in a certain way, if we uh, there are plenty of experiments in which quantum experiments in which if we choose to observe the system in a different way, we get a different result, which may not be consistent, seemingly not consistent with what we get if we look at it in a different way. Um, so it, it, it really and this was really Neil Spohr's point that it, we, we have to specify 
how we're looking, what we're trying to measure. And that's really what quantum mechanics tells you. It tells you it's a sort of um, machinery, really, for telling you if you do this experiment that you have specified, you know, how you're looking at this, then you'll get this result. So if you look at, for example, the, the double slit experiment where a quantum particle like an electron is going through two slits, um, just one electron going through two slits at a time, um, then you will see uh, a, a wave-like interference pattern in where the electrons turn up on a screen as if the electron seems to sort of know, it seems to be interfering with itself. It seems to know that it's, it's, it looks as though it's going through two, the two slits at the same time. OK, but it would be wrong to say <laughs> this shows the electron is going through two slits at the same time. Um, it'd be wrong to use that isness. It would be, it really, we should just be saying, if we do this experiment, we see this um, interference pattern that looks like wave behavior. If, however, we put a detector in one of the slits that isn't going to disturb the passage of the electron other than to just let us know that it has passed through that slit. If we do the experiment that way, then that wave behavior goes away and the electron looks like a sort of the kind of classical particle. See, that that's the most bloody difficult bit for any of us non-physicists right this f idea that this detector somehow yeah because immediately you end up with i used to do routine about talking about a universe of cheeky particles that kind of you know the moment you look away they go quick now we're everywhere oh they're looking back again oh it wasn't doing anything at all you know anthropomorphizing part and it's such uh uh that that's when i sometimes wonder why i should ever try and read these books um I kind of enjoy it, but then afterwards I'm 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 left floundering uh, because just the very idea of something that is observing it, how that interacts with the behaviour of that particle is is a really every time twenty years now still when you say that to me there's a bit that goes and it's, and it's, and it's even worse than that Robin because <laughs> if you um it's it's not just that if you put a detector at the slit that tells you if the particle's gone through you you know it changes what you see. It's if you wait until you are, are sure that the particle must have gone through the slits and you measure it somehow on the far side that in a way that will tell you uh, which slit it went through. Um, if you do that, it's called a delayed choice experiment. So you wait until it should have gone through the apparatus and, if you like, made its choice about whether to be a, a particle or a wave. And then you look at it. Um, you, you, you still see the same effect. Um, it's, it's so, you know, it's almost as though... We have to talk about it in these crazy ways, as though the particle, the electron, as it goes through the slits, knows somehow that you've got a detector up in front that mm. is going to measure. And so it's got to decide, am I going to be a wave or a particle? Uh, you know, and these are the kind of stories, the, you know, the ridiculous stories that we end up telling, these very sort of anthropomorphic stories, because it, it's so hard to make intuitive sense of how that can happen. Yeah. Do you agree? <laughs> there's, 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 a, there's a chapter in quantum space, actually, that might might help you. Um uh, you, you can imagine when you're trying to construct a quantum theory of gravity, your foundation, your building blocks are quantum mechanics and, and general relativity. Now, we, we think we know, even though it's a bit bizarre to have curved space-time, we think we, we can understand general relativity. It's a classical theory after all. But quantum mechanics is rife with these conceptual issues that you're not going to make any progress unless you, you feel you've got an understanding of what quantum mechanics means before you start to put these two great building blocks together this is i mean i i sometimes 
have a problem with thinking of Gil Scott Heron's poem uh, "Whitey on the Moon," you know, which the the, the poem for uh, when when human beings were landing on the moon, and his poem is a look at the fact that there are people in in terrible destitution. Whereas, and there is a point at the moment where I have to admit. I'm, and I hope you've got an answer for me here, that I am finding it sometimes troubling when I do sit down and I read books like both of your books and I find them fascinating, but I think, should I even be reading about these things? Is that it, when when the struggle that we seem to be having of an increase in dogma, should I be reading about these probabilities? And and that does seem to... I, I sometimes, you know, I wonder if we're going to have a species divide at one point within humanity because, you know, there's it, it, and it does feel like that there's a huge schism that's appeared again. These schisms are always there, but sometimes you think they're going to disappear and social media has kind of enlightened us to a level of tribalism again. And, you know, you do hope maybe there will be a point where people go to a doctor and say, we can't have children. They go, I'm afraid it's because your husband's an idiot. And uh, because he's an idiot, uh, he's got... You're a different species now. Yeah, and we end up, but we end up with Kurt Vonnegut's Galapagos, which doesn't have a, have a happy ending, really. So, uh, yeah, just on that, what do you, how how do how do we draw people to these ideas, and and why should we? We're going to be confronted by them. I mean, you're right to say that we already engineers uh, already use quantum mechanics to uh, predict and understand how the circuits behave in the transistors that are in our mobile phones and so on. But we're going to be confronted by these, if you like, these these strangenesses of quantum mechanics imminently for one reason, because of quantum computers, which I used to think, I mean, even when I started writing this book, I kind of thought, yeah, it's going to, you know, maybe it's going to happen, but it's, it's, it's decades off. The pace at which that field has developed has astonished me and has astonished people in the field. So quantum computers are computers that work in a different way to all the computers we have at the moment. They work by manipulating <laughs> bits of information, if you like, ones and zeros, switches that are on or off. Quantum computers will kind of do the same thing, except that the switches can be in superpositions of states. And what I don't want us to say is that means they're both on and off at the same time. They don't mean it doesn't mean that. It means something else. And we get it's very hard to put into words. But what it does mean is that if we make a measurement on those switches, they can be that we can find in that measurement that it's either on or off. It's either a one or a zero. Both of those are possibilities. If we entangle switches like that, quantum bits like that together so that they are in a sort of interdependent state, then we can do computation in a completely different way. And in for, for certainly for some problems and some, some very important problems, we can do it in a much more powerful way. These devices already exist. And I mean, you know, they're being made by IBM and by Google and by the, the, the giants. And they are already approaching the stage where they will be capable of doing something, solving some problems that are classical, even the best supercomputers we have at the moment can't solve. And so they're going to, to happen and they're going to be used and businesses are already clamoring um, uh, to people like IBM and Google to you know get, get hold of, of these things. But it's going to go beyond that as well because people are already building the quantum internet. And this makes use of these effects, these entangled states, but also some things that seem even more extraordinary, an idea called perhaps not very wisely quantum teleportation, where it seems as though you can somehow teleport, instantly send a quantum state, a state of one of these little qubits on or off switches, um, 
instantly send it across any distance, really. It's been done between a ground station and a space satellite hundreds, even thousand <coughs> kilometres away. Uh, it's as though you're teleporting that particular particle. You're not doing that. You're transporting in some way. You're copying, well, sort of copying, but uh, destroying the original, um, the state of that particle across those distances instantaneously. And that allows you to actually start using the laws of quantum mechanics on the internet to send around information. And in particular, there are ways that you can use these techniques to encrypt information much more securely than you can at the moment with our classical computers. In fact, encrypted in, in ways that the laws of physics prevent anyone from tampering with without that tampering being detected. So that's one of the reasons to, uh, to make an ultra-secure telecommunications network that the quantum network is being built but it will be able to do other things as well and it will broaden this the scope of quantum computing because you could do it in a cloud so you could do it remotely um you know much more in a much more widespread way this the, you know there, there is already a kind of quantum computing network being built between beijing and shanghai and uh, as i say there are people in china who have used a link like this to send quantum information between beijing effectively and vienna so we're going to be using these the, these these strange rules that quantum mechanics seems to uh, 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 seems to impose on the universe. We're, it's going to be part of our everyday lives in much the same way as you know mobile phones and computers and information technology, classical information technology already has, and it will sh confront us very directly with the undeniable fact that the world really does work this way, that quantum mechanics really does tell us about you know how at some level reality the universe seems to behave. We've run out of time. I was going to ask you whether the only way we'll understand the universe is always metaphorically, but we'll deal with that with uh, Melvin Bragg uh, another time. Uh, Jim Baggett's Quantum Space has uh, just come out and is just in the shops now. Uh, Philip Ball's Beyond Weird is, uh, has been out for a couple of months, about three months now, and is, is, uh, they're both fantastic, and, and they work well together, in fact. There's uh, chapter by chapter, so uh, I highly recommend both those. Thank you very much, Jim. Thank you very much, Phil. Cheers, Pleasure. Robin. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening. Remember, there's an extended version of this episode on the Patreon feed, patreon.com slash bookshambles, if you're a supporter there, or if you'd like to become one. Uh, our next episode of Science Shambles will be about the Arctic and climate change and sea ice and all of those uh, important things uh, with Dr Helen Chersky, just back from her Arctic expedition, and sea ice researcher Dr Sammy Buzzard. So look out for that very soon. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network.